DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us if you're listening in real time. It is Monday afternoon. I hope you all had a great weekend. Summer really, really coming to an end for an awful lot of people out there, including one of our panelists for today, State Senator Jen Jordan, Democrat, who is starting to talk about her kid's going back to school soon. I know. It's kind of a good thing. <laughs> kind of a good thing. I remember those days well. <laughs> Hello, Jen. Glad uh, you could be with us Thank uh, you. today. Uh, across from you is um, Heath Garrett, Republican strategist, associate of Johnny Isaacson. You've worked for Johnny for many, many years now. We have not seen you much lately. You've been really busy because election season really is cranking up. You're all over the place with... Uh, Clients, potential clients, and whatnot. Yes, uh, I have been. You know, defending. I say, like you say, defending liberty is a full time occupation <laughs> these days. Uh, Bill. But the perpetual cycle has campaigns starting so much earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're glad you're here. By the way, I, Howard Franklin is also here today, sitting across the table from you. If you're watching us on Facebook Live. Uh, at the GPB news page of Facebook, you'll see he's over there. Hey, Howard. Hey, guys. And Howard, you too are your Democratic strategist, do government affairs work down <clears throat> in the Capitol a lot. Heath Garrett is taking both of you on as the sole Republican on the panel today. <laughs> he's up to the challenge. I believe in him. Well, you know, just <laughs> in the interests of, you know, openness here, we're always transparent about how we put this show together. There are days when we have two people of one party and only one of the... I mean, it just... It's a luck of the draw. A week ago today, we had two Republicans and one Democrat, and one of our faithful listeners actually posted a note saying, Ugh, two, Demo two Republicans on the show. I'm not going to listen, <laughs> which... <laughs> I was I felt terrible, but that's the way it goes sometimes. All right, you don't care, do you, Heath? Uh, I'm just glad anybody's listening. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, it's my goal is to have fair-minded conversations, no matter what the balance is. And here to help me do that today is Stephen Fowler. He's GPB Radio's uh, political reporter, and uh, you've got a lot to talk about. You you were busy last Friday covering Judge uh, Amy Totenberg in federal court. She knows how to not end a hearing. 9 p.m. was by the time I got home on Friday. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Uh, we should also say that uh, Amy Kiley is filling in, uh, producing the show today. She's the On Second Thought EP. And uh, we got both Robert Jimison and Tom Faust are off today. So, Amy, we're glad that you could be here to help us out. All right, let's get right to it. Uh, we, we want to talk about the Amy, Amy Totenberg court case, but we really have news that, um, that preempts that. We have breaking news about the new election system. Stephen, what happened today? That's right, Bill. This morning, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's office made the announcement that we have a new voting system that will be put in place in 2020, and the vendor that they selected is, drumroll, not ESNS. The state picked Dominion Voting Systems to provide more than 30,000 ballot-marking devices for Georgia voters to use starting in next March. And we call them ballot-marking devices to be sure we've got, we're all on the same page. You will still vote on a touchscreen. It will then mark a paper ballot, which you will then feed in to a scanner. Have I got that right? That's right. So pretty much the main difference between how we vote now and how we will vote a year from now is that paper ballot piece. It's not a hand-marked paper ballot with pen and, you know, pen, pencil, and paper, but it takes your selections, it prints them out. There's a QR code that has your vote in it, but you scan that ballot with a QR code with a text printout of your votes. And then that scanner also keeps an image of your ballot. So there's three different ways your vote is stored. So, um, Jen, when, when Stephen says, surprise, surprise, it's not ES and S, which is the company that we have used in Georgia ever since uh, uh, then-Secretary of State Kathy Cox uh, uh, brought them in to uh, sell us those machines we've been using ever since. Why would it be surprised at ES and S? What's the backstory to ES and S? And what were many people afraid of with ES and S? Well, I think the thing with ES and S is that many um, 
people high up in Governor Kemp's administration um, had been noted by press accounts to be pretty cozy with the company and even had served as lobbyists for the company. So there was a sense that maybe ES&S had a leg up um, from the beginning. And I'll tell you, they may have, but after all the press accounts kind of linking ES&S and then to folks in terms of Kemp's administration, um, that may have ended up actually hurting them at the end of the day. Well, you know, I, I will push back on that to a certain extent. This was a state procurement contract and there was a months-long state procurement process. You could read all the documents online of what they were looking for and how they were going to score it. They had six people score it. And in the end, the biggest difference in the final scoring was the cost. Dominion's, Absolutely. Dominion's cost was way lower than the other two, which pushed their total score over the top. It's $89 million for one year, and then over the course of a 10-year contract, it's $106 million that the state had $150 million in mind. So they came in way under, and that is, per the state procurement rules, the reason that Dominion was selected as number one. Look, I'm all for it. I'm all for us being fiscally responsible here. And one of the things I do want to point out is you, you indicated about the QR codes, which a lot of folks had heartburn about. Yeah. Um, but it's my understanding that with respect to the recounts, um, recounts will be done with respect to the actual human readable text. Is that correct, Stephen? Yes. Dominion says that they have the QR codes. Uh, they have a little section on their FAQ on the Secretary of State. State's uh, website about the barcodes, but you take that paper, it has, you know, Governor Stacey Abrams, as I'm sure you voted, or Governor Brian Kemp. It has everything listed out on there. The QR code is scanned, a picture of the ballot is scanned, and there's the words of your vote. So if there's any questions or recounts or audits, they look at the word. There's a picture to back it up in addition to what the barcode scanned the first so, time. So Heath, uh, Dominion's out of Denver. I was I look I was looking at their website this morning after they were announced as the winner of this contract and I, I there was one interesting little fact that I'm going to share mm-hmm. uh, they were the first company in the country to uh, uh, supply to a city in New York and I don't have it right in front of me now not New York City the uh, lever machines where you would pull a lever and it would directly count your ballot and that was around 1901 or something like that so they've been in business a long time. They've had a good long history, and it looks like the state procurement process worked out really well at the end of the day, uh, the way we want state procurement processes to work. Uh, There were a lot of inside baseball discussion, inside politics discussion about who had the front-runner status. And obviously, look, this is an issue that's going to be litigated all the way through the 2020 and 2022 elections, in my opinion, just because there are people, uh, we were talking a little bit off the radio, there's just people on both sides uh, of the political spectrum who have total distrust in our voting machines for different reasons, some of which are factual and scientific based and some of which are just conspiracy based. And I think that's the reality we're gonna be dealing with as we try to implement this system now. Howard Nakima Williams, the chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia put out a statement a while ago. I'll read it, just parts of it. She said, today's announcement by the Secretary of State comes after months of closed door negotiations and an absolutely opaque process, hiding the biggest voting machine contract in history from the Georgia voters who are paying for it. While it's good news, she goes on on that, and it's a good thing she says that it's not ES&S, which the fear was that because of Brian Kemp's connections, his staff's connections to the company, they'd get the contract. She says that's a good thing, but then she says, make no mistake, This choice does little to overcome the past decade of incompetence and active voter suppression under the Kemp-Raffensperger administration, and she goes on from there. Yeah, so much to say about that. Um, First and foremost, I just think there's a lot of folks who can point to real... Uh, breaches, policy, et cetera, across the board from this from our incumbent ESNS that they'd like to see addressed. And although this process seems to have worked out uh, for the best, I think there's still going to be a lot of people looking for policy change beyond what we saw passed in the last legislative session that really gives people confidence that their votes will be counted, that there can't be, whether it is 
uh, tampering or if there's ill intent from inside of the Secretary of State's office or if there are foreign actors that the state has been very slow uh, to address. I think we just saw some uh, reporting a couple weeks ago as we as we mentioned Russia and, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. This That's right. This contract comes and Amy Totenberg, who we'll talk about in a minute, her thinking about uh, what we should be doing about our election machinery comes just a couple of weeks after the Senate Intelligence Committee's report which revealed that Russians tried to interfere with elections in every single one of the 50 states in 2018. And some were very slow to get to them. Jen, you to weigh in? Yeah, in terms of the transparency of this process, while I want to say I applaud it and I'm glad it worked out the way it did in terms of um, people being able to see what the RFP is and the ranking and all of that, you know, I think that actually was brought about because of the pressure being put on state government and also because of Judge Totenberg hearing this lawsuit. I mean, these are the issues at the heart of the lawsuit that she is currently hearing. So if you're the Secretary of State, you want to try to moot this lawsuit. You want to try to moot the issues as much as possible. How do you do that? You try to be transparent. You try to go to the judge and say, look, look what we're doing. We're doing everything that you say we should do. So I think that the transparency and kind of the result we got has become, has, is a result of the pressure the public pressure, but also the pressure from the federal courts. So let's talk about the lawsuit. Stephen, uh, this lawsuit brought by two plaintiffs has been underway for some time now. It's right. not new. Uh, it, it started back, what is almost 2017, right? Uh, more than well over a year ago. And, and essentially what the plaintiffs are asking the court to do is to put us in a position where we vote on paper ballots says that at least the current machinery we're using, the ES&S machines, are, are no longer reliable. They, mis- they miscount votes in some cases, say the plaintiffs. They are susceptible to being tampered with. And the, so the lawsuit says, let's go to paper balloting. And I got, that's the most basic thing it says, right? So specifically hand-marked yes, paper ballots. Right, there is a difference. Right, this right. is the ones you do, you know, with pen and right. you go... Right. Uh, the, the lawsuit, the hearing last week, it was two days of hearing, and basically the two sets of plaintiffs, big picture, want this fall's local and municipal elections to be conducted on hand-marked paper ballots. They have slight deviations of how they think it should be done. One set of plaintiffs says uh, use Georgia's existing election management system and scanners that they have in the counties for absentee ballots and use them to count them all. The other says throw everything out, take whatever new system, now it's Dominion, uh, implement the scanners and the election night system early and then use those to conduct hand-marked paper ballot elections. But really the last two weeks of here, uh, the, the last week's hearing, the two days, you had uh, Georgia voters, uh, computer science experts and other elections officials from other states talk about the need to either the feasibility of switching to handmarked paper ballots or the need to upgrade to something more secure. And on the other side, you had county elections officials who actually run elections here in Georgia say, we could do it. Obviously, it's a court order. We would comply, but it would be a huge cost and staffing and chaotic burden. All right. So let's Heath. Stephen just laid that out well. Let's right. let's give the listeners a real roadmap on all of this. We have some 300 plus municipal elections coming up in November, and it's as as the current status stands, those elections would be conducted with the existing machinery we've been using in the state for a couple of decades now. Um, the state's mandate passed by the legislature to buy new machines has been designed to put those machines in place for the 2020 election cycle. And Totenberg has now essentially going to have to make, Stephen lays out these choices, are we in the municipal elections going to go with actual paper-marked ballots? Are we going to use the existing system that's been in place for so long? They're not going to... You can't buy these machines, train people, train the workers, train the voter. I remember what it was like when Kathy Cox put these machines in place. You do, too. That's right. It was a long education process for all of us, voters, election workers, journalists who needed to understand it. So that's really not going to happen. 
Well, that's right. I think most of the testimony was from anybody who's going to have to do this in the state of Georgia, that it would be at a minimum disruptive uh, and, and chaotic. And if not, it could actually create greater uncertainty and distrust in the public. So I think that was one of the key uh, bits of testimony last week. And we were right. I mean, a lot of people were misunderstanding this, this lawsuit as if this has anything to do with 2020. It might be a predicate for a future lawsuit, but these issues will be moot with the new system coming in from a legal standpoint and somehow to file a new, I'm sure somehow file a new lawsuit on the new system next year. But I do think that the other thing that's interesting here, and our listeners need to know, if, from the perspective of what I was able to see and hear, the plaintiffs were not, did not provide any actual evidence that the systems we're using today have been actually compromised in an election, right? There was a lot of testimony about how in theory they could, but no actual evidence. I think it's going to be interesting to watch because Ms. Totenberg clearly likes these cases and likes the headlines, but there's no evidence here that this system is to the voters. Are we being scared as, as if something has happened, Stephen, or, or, you know, what was the real testimony there? You know, what what the judge said was that this was a really weighty issue for her to weigh into. She, you know, reads all of the briefs. There's thousands and thousands of pages of documents. But really, at the core, she said that uh, a year ago, the state had buried its head in the sand about the cybersecurity threats and about how the system, the DRE system that we currently use works. But going through this legislative process showed that the state is trying to do things and trying to do things better. But, you know, in the case of these DREs and what's used in the local elections in the fall, there's still the very real cybersecurity risk. There's still, you know, questions about how the Secretary of State's office as a whole runs its cybersecurity operations and secures things. So she's having to weigh uh, the state saying, we've got this, we're implementing a new system with uh, the vo- voters who will vote this fall saying, we might not trust our vote on this system. You want to get in here, Jen? Yeah. Well, so part of the thing is, he, y- y- you say that, you know, they haven't even provided any evidence. My question is, do they even have to provide evidence at this point after the Senate Intelligence Committee has basically said that all 50 states um, were breached? in some way. I mean, when you, you have kind of the federal well, government well, coming they, in. The U.S. Senate committee did not say that the state of Georgia's voting machines were breached. When they talk about interference in these elections, there are lots of different ways to be interfered with. And we have redundancy in our system, right, that would have caught that had there been. But it's very difficult to for them to, everybody thinks that these machines are hooked up to the internet, right, and by Wi-Fi, some cyber hacker in Russia could attack these machines on election day. That's not how these machines work technologically. And so I think there's a lot of fear-mongering out there that, again, it, it, we're right to be concerned about that, but I, I want to make sure that our listeners know. No, but you no, know what? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut off no, your last part of your sentence, but you know, Howard, it is interesting. It, it, these are closed systems, except that the Senate Intelligence Committee did say that if you placed a Russian operative somewhere near... Uh, an election uh, operating system, there could be a way to plug into that system and corrupt it. And you'll recall when the Kennesaw State, when the voter data, the uh, voting data system was uh, housed up there at Kennesaw State University, they did get a visit from the Russian ambassador to the, you know, a high-level Russian official. And although this sounds conspiratorial, I do recall people at the time saying, hmm, why is there a Russian up there? That is not to say there was actual <laughs> interference. It's just kind of interesting. I, and I wouldn't go that far either, but Heath and I are, are veterans of these campaigns. We know that over the course of the last several years, the policy around really protecting these ballot boxes has been completely inconsistent from one jurisdiction to the next, whether it's a county or a city. So, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And I think to the point that I think we've heard everyone say here, the the general voting public is interested in having more confidence in this process, yeah. making sure it's secure and having and, and seeing uh, seeing a confirmation of the, the votes that they take. So I think you'd have to say that we're going th- that especially as you look at Judge Totenberg, Stephen, and what's transpired in her court, th- this is helpful to the public. It is helpful to Georgians to think that there is a, a well-respected judge and all of us as observers through you as a journalist watching how this process unfolds and we get to hear how 
uh, concerned people are about making sure our election is secure. So in some ways, the process probably is beneficial to all of us. Well, certainly. I mean, I, you know, as somebody who covers elections, it took me a long time to understand just how my vote was cast and counted and works. And with this new system, it'll probably take weeks of figuring out the intricacies there. But it does say there's a big task ahead of the Secretary of State's office and all of us as journalists or panelists or just Georgians to figure out how our vote works and what it takes for us to have faith in the electoral process and assurance that how we vote is cast and counted accurately. All right, put a, fu- a punctuation mark, a period on this before we take a break. Uh, uh, Totenberg w- says we think she's going to rule relatively soon as to whether we're going to go to paper ballots in the municipal elections, whether we're going to keep using the same machinery, some configuration thereof. But when I read all of the reporting, including yours on this, my sense was that Judge Totenberg was not really didn't seem inclined to want to force the issue to paper balloting. It's a question of chaos, as she said. And now that the state, the the state filed this morning in the case, they filed the notice of intent to award of this new contract. They say, we've got this, you know, we've got this now. So now I wonder, they've made this decision. They told the judge last week they were going to make a decision. So now it's going to be up to her to figure out if the burden of forcing these counties and cities and things to move to hand-marked paper ballots and then move to ballot-marking yeah. devices will be worth it. Jen, give you the last word in this segment. There are something like a million or more people who are eligible to vote in the municipal elections in the fall. Can you imagine that we would find ourselves in a position where, as Stephen uh, points out, we may have one form of voting in this November and then go to the new machines uh, for the primary starting in the presidential primary in March. It seems unlikely, doesn't it? Yeah. And look, I think what Judge Totenberg, what she was really concerned about when she was originally faced with this before the, the 2018 elections was the idea that this could actually serve to maybe even disenfranchise more people because if they had to stand in line longer or if the systems really weren't worked out um you know, you can have more problems yeah. and more the unintended consequences of adopting a system like this. And also, let's be clear here, because these municipal elections kind of happen at the local level, the people that are going to be, I mean, footing the bill are going to be the locals. I mean, this isn't going to be the state of Georgia coming in and saying, here, we'll pay for all of this or we'll provide extra personnel for you. I mean, it is going to be the local municipalities. And at the end of the day, they're already strapped as it is. So I can't imagine that when she's balancing this, that that she's going to do that. Um, We're going to go to a break. Uh, You can read Stephen Fowler's story on all of this at two stories, one on the uh, selection of Dominion as the new uh, voting machine supplier and software supplier, and his story on his day in court with uh, Justice Judge Totenberg at gpbnews.org. I know you're going off to report more about this and other stories. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks, thanks for having me. All right, let's take a break, and when we come back, what do you say we talk a little bit about old President Trump? Are you thinking of getting rid of your old car, truck, or RV? GPB's vehicle donation program is here to help. Donating has never been easier. We'll take care of everything, including free pickup of your vehicle. Just go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR. That's 877-472-1227. And thanks so much. On the next Fresh Air, we look at the bizarre world of insects and why we can't live without them. Anne Svardrup Thigason, professor of conservation biology, tells us why fruit flies are more useful than we think and how cockroaches could be vital to our survival. Her book is called Buzz, Sting, Bite. Join us. Fresh Air this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Heath Garrett is with us, Howard Franklin, uh, Senator Jen Jordan. By the way, two quick notes. Number one, yes, we'll be in Augusta on Monday night, August 12th, 7 o'clock. 
We'll be recording the show in front of a live audience at the Jesse Norman School of the Arts. We would love to have you there. We have not yet been to Augusta after being on the air with the show for a long time. So come on out and uh, and say hello to us, watch the show, participate in the show. Just go to the Political Rewind uh, website, politicalrewind.org, and click on the link that you'll see there for Augusta and reserve yourself a free ticket. And the other note, I, I've meant to do this for a few days, but, you know, the uh, engineer uh, for our program, Jesse Neiswanger, who runs the board for us, he has been composing the music that we use at the very start, what we call the billboard, the headlines before the newscast. Jesse, a shout out to you for doing such a great job on our music. Maybe we play a little bit of it later on in the show going out, okay? All right. Uh, Heath Garrett, let's give you the first shot at this. You've got candidates running in the 2020 election cycle. This weekend, President Trump, as we all know by now, continued with the kind of tropes that put him in a position where people accuse him of uh, being a racist or at least putting out racist messages. The most uh, recent ones were about Elijah Cummings. If racist Elijah Cummings is the most recent one about him, would focus more of his energy on helping the good people of his district in Baltimore itself... Perhaps progress could be made in fixing the mess that he has helped to create over many years of incompetent leadership. But, of course, that was after a couple of days of this. And um, before that, he talked about uh, Baltimore as a city that, no, it was not fit for any human being to live in, vermin-infested. Heath, how does this in any way help? I get it. The president is rallying his base How does it help someone like you trying to elect Republicans in lower offices around the country? Uh, You know, I think it's a a loaded question, right, at the end of the day. Why is it loaded? Uh, Well, because the presumption is is that President Trump's the one who's taken us here, and he has definitely uh, put fuel on the fire here. So if I take apart my personal concerns about where the country's heading in its racial discourse, right, around race relations, uh, and put that aside and answer the question about what is it doing for local offices, it just depends on the local uh, reaction, right? There are lots of voters out there uh, across the country in the suburbs and in rural and in urban areas who are kind of tired of identity politics on both sides of the uh, political spectrum. And so half the country right now sees Donald Trump as responding to harshly negative and uh, racially incisive comments by Eliza Cummings and by others or attacks on him. And then vice versa, half the country views what President Trump is doing as either racist or intolerant or discriminatory at best. And what it is, what's shocking to us as a system is we've never seen a president engage with political adversaries the way this president does that. And I think everybody's correct to say, hey, we've got to have some concern here. But I I don't know how we get that discourse back to where it is with platforms like Twitter and others that basically invite vitriol on both sides. And so, Yeah. Um, Howard, just to to, um, be more specific, the uh, first tweet from uh, President Trump about Baltimore was, it is disgusting, rat and rodent infest, a rat and a rat and rodent infested mess. No human being would want to live there. But, you know, maybe Heath makes an interesting point in the sense that I framed this as a political electoral issue. But it's so much bigger than that, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, a couple of things he said. I, you know, it's one thing to talk about how this president deals with his political opponents. But this president talks to virtually anyone and everyone any way he feels, whether, whether they're members of his own party, uh, former employees, cabinet secretaries, you know, all via Twitter. And I would love to lay this at the feet of social media, but Twitter's, Twitter's been around a decade and a half. We've had two or three other administrations who have embraced social media, who have who've shared their thoughts um, and, and, you know, maybe it's maybe we should blame the character limit going up to 280 at this point. But this particular president, um, in whatever form he can find, has his own way of dealing with folks, whether they are friend or foe. And I, I think it's I, I think it's a little probably a, a little bit of of uh, hand wringing to, to say that this is 
just the environment that we're in. I think you, this president in particular, or or even that the majority or half of, of the country is supportive and the other half is not. I think if that were the case with the with the economy that we have, he'd have much higher approval ratings were he trying to stay above the fray. So I, yeah. go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, I think in a way, Jen, that's... We, that's kind of my point. I mean, when I frame this as, is this good or bad for Republican candidates for office, I, I think in a way I'm lowering the discourse. This is, is this good or bad for the spiritual health of the United States of America is the more uh, fundamental question, isn't it? Yes and no. Let me, let me say this. I think that we're giving this too much, too much oxygen. I mean, respectfully. Um, sure. As, as far as I'm concerned, um, and, you know, this is going to be pretty straightforward, but it's really just grumpy old man wakes up, tweets something racist <laughs> oh, again, God. again, and again, and again. And instead of talking about Jeffrey Epstein or lower than expected GDP or children in cages mistreated at the border or election security, Mueller, Dan Coats resigning on and on and on. And what do we do? We pay attention um, to his tweets, which really is just another tweet. It's just another day. And it was just a few months ago when he was basically saying the same things about Congressman John Lewis and calling Atlanta in the 5th District rat infested and the like. Yeah, that's right. Uh, John, to set this up, the reason the president attacked Elijah Cummings, we imagine, is because Elijah Cummings went after his director of Homeland Security in a, in a hearing a while back, was very tough in a House Oversight Committee. Elijah Cummings is the chair of that committee in, in accusing him of uh, uh, mistreating uh, people in his care, in his custody down at the border. Uh, and, and it was a tough, tough few minutes of of attack by Elijah Cummings on the director, and Trump responds now. As you say, just before being sworn in as president, um, John Lewis, 5th District Congressman here, made the statement publicly he would not be attending the inauguration because he didn't accept that President Trump was legitimate, basically. And it was then that the president did, as you say, Jen, go after John Lewis and the city of Atlanta in much the same language, saying that it was a vermin-infested city. Um, so it, this continues a trope that's been going on for a while. You know, there is a, an interesting uh, distinction here. Um, in cities that reside in states like Georgia, where he, I assume he thinks it's a foregone conclusion he'll win our electoral college votes uh, come 2020, I think we'll, we'll surprise him, or in states even like... Um, even like in Maryland, where he knows that Democrats will likely count Maryland in the win column, he refrains from talking about. Well, he he speaks to the actual uh, the constituents and the, the the conditions in the whole nine yards. But when he criticizes folks who reside in places where he needs to maintain support, he makes those attacks much more personal. Justin Amash from my hometown or my home state of Michigan is a great example of this, right? After Justin publicly said, hey, I no longer want to be a part of this Republican Party, he had all sorts of harsh words to say about him, but nothing bad to say about the Great Lakes State. I think the same thing's been true for Marco Rubio when they've had their words over the course of the presidential, uh, the primaries, as well as into his, his term as president. Nothing bad to say about Floridians. I'm just going to aim all of my vitriol at one individual. And I think he I think he's a little more thoughtful and calculated about what he's actually saying. I know the 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 typos and the misspellings would lead us to believe otherwise. But I think he's he's thinking about this more than we're giving him credit for. All right. So let me continue this theme of making it larger than just electoral politics. And then I do want to do a dive into how this is going to affect politics here in Georgia. Uh, Heath, um, I'm. It, I'm a little bit frightened that we are entering this election period and this is the choice that has been made by the president for how he is going to run his campaign. There's no reason to think it's going to change. He's clearly running toward that very, very the base. And uh, this is the kind of messaging that he think works. And I do fear a little bit for how much further this is going to go in the year ahead. And I'll bet you do, too. Well, I, you know, it does. I don't I don't necessarily fear it because 
Donald Trump has been this way for 40 years. Right? I know, but he's now he's, president. He's now president. And, 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 and a great comedian who's a left-leaning comedian said, but, he, but he's president, right? The, the American people elected the president, and he is not going to change. And I think we need to all accept that fact. And then I think we need to be careful and call the balls and strikes when we see them. And I get a little bit concerned when everything's racist that may or may not be because now that word's being used for everything that's either – you know, impolite or crude or rude or other things. And we could argue whether this incidence is that or not. But I do think that if you go down to base politics, Bill, uh, it's where both parties have chosen to go, right? Uh, my two Democratic friends across the table are not going to agree with this, but it's true. The Democratic Party's electorate is based on identity politics right now. And so the president... What is that? I mean, help it, it, me it, understand or help listeners understand when right. you talk about identity politics. Right. What do can, you think and, that means? And, and then let, we'll let, and let me be clear. This is a chicken and an egg question as to who started this, right? But identity politics is or motivated voters to vote based upon their identity and either with their race, their ethnicity, or whatever group uh, that they identify with, and then parsing out and trying to motivate people to vote vote almost solely based upon their identity in a particular group. And so, look, I can say a pox on both houses because I think both parties at times throughout history have used uh, identity politics in a way, and I think this president is the first Republican in broad form to basically adopt a similar strategy to what the Democrats have done. I said, yeah, if you're going to attack me for these reasons, I'm going to attack back pretty harshly. And and I agree with you, though, Bill. I'm concerned about where this discourse is taking us as a nation, but I don't think it's going to change on either side in 2020 because both parties are trying to motivate bases. All right, Jen, you're a former debater. You're up. (laughs) Look, this is the problem. I mean, the reason that identity politics has really risen to the top right now is because that all we are hearing from the president of the United States are attacks on people based on their identities. Okay, that's what it comes down to. If you're a woman, you're attacked based on your identity as a woman. If you're a person of color or a woman of color, or if if you come from a certain place, if, you, if you're Puerto Rican, I mean, that's the problem. The problem is, is that this kind of divisiveness in terms of, you know, identity politics is really the attacks that we hear day after day after day. And so you really, if you are a woman and you feel attacked because of the policies and the laws that are being passed, heck yeah, you're starting to take that into consideration. I mean, it's not the end all be all of everything, but listen, you look at these tweets, you hear what he has to say, and at the end of the day, these various groups that may be of one identity or the other are coming together. And that really isn't divisive. That is about bringing the country as a whole together because we are different. We are different. <clears throat> I agree. And I think this particular president, in addition, I, I'll accept um, that parties play a role in the kind of discourse that we see broadcast across the airwaves involved in politics. I think this particular president has shown himself to be disingenuous uh, in ways where he will stoke racial fears. He will stoke racial resentment, xenophobia. And then he'll get up there and say, hey, I, I told those folks to stop chanting. And when when the tape shows otherwise, right, when when people remind him of the things he said, he just comp- he just disavows the reality that we're all constrained by. And I, that's just a very difficult place. It'd be one thing if there was a, a willingness by this particular administration to acknowledge where things have gone wrong. Uh, and, and to show some degree of humanity or humility about the things that have been said. But absent that, I don't see how you get to a, a meaningful place. So, okay, let's talk now about, we've both, we've all agreed, right. Heath, that we're worried that this is not good for the country to, to find us in a place where we are so suspicious of one another, seemingly hostile toward one another as people. Uh, so now let's talk about it from a, a point of view of electoral politics. Jen, uh, you have important legislative races ahead of you for Democrats. You have the 6th and 7th District congressional races. We'll uh, remind everybody that uh, that Heath, who I certainly want him to be a part of this, but he does have Brandon Beach, a candidate for the Republican nomination in the 6th as a, as a uh, candidate in this race. Um, so... Talk about it in its most basic form. How does this impact, do you think, 
voters, especially in those suburban districts where uh, U.S. Democrats were able, including you yourself, were able to make uh, strides in part because of where the Republican Party seems to be headed? Look, I think a lot of people are concerned. Um, I mean, whether it's discourse, whether it's a feeling of, um, you know, we feel more divided than than we've ever been in this country. And um, and it feels like it's coming fast and furious every day. I mean, it's like an onslaught that we can't get away from. So do you think this is this accrues to the benefit of Democrats running in the 6th and 7th district congressional races? I mean, Lucy McBeth, the incumbent, but in the 7th, you're going to have an open seat. Maybe. But, <laughs> but, this is, but this is, look, but this is kind of, and I want to kind of piggyback on what you said. I mean, okay, so maybe there there is some kind of benefit from an electoral perspective because people are feeling so angry and so upset. But is that really good at the end of the day in terms of our politics mm. and in terms of our institutions and moving forward? Um, and, and, it, and, and I'm incredibly bothered by it. I have been for a long time, but it really is starting to feel like it's not going to get any better, and in fact, it's going to get worse going into 2020. Heath, I did start the conversation with right. a question that you said was a loaded question, but I think it's a very real question. You've got Brandon Beach up there in the 6th. But there are any number of other Republicans running there in the 7th as well. It, in, that, in those suburban districts that moved toward the Democrats in 2018, right. are you going to face bigger challenges as a result of the president's rhetoric? There's no question that candidates, uh, Republican candidates in these suburban swing districts, whether they're around Atlanta, Georgia, or whether they're around Philadelphia or Detroit or other places where there are 50-50 districts, let's call them, are going to have to bob and weave around the president's rhetoric. Right. And or the Democratic rhetoric. Uh, what's different between 2018 and 2020 is I think everybody's coming to vote. Right. Stacey Abrams overperformed Hillary Clinton's numbers in the state of Georgia in 2018. That's almost unheard of that a that a statewide candidate would overperform a presidential number right that. So she maximized turnout. Uh, Brian Kemp underperformed uh, Donald Trump's numbers. So if you presume that everybody that voted for Donald Trump's coming back, Republicans, in theory, could be in a better position in 2020. And if 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 Trump's rhetoric is motivating folks to come back out and vote, whether we like that or not, uh, I, I think that's why I say it's going to be a mixed bag on the purely the political side. I wanted to unpack it because I didn't want your listeners to think if we were talking about the raw politics, we didn't care about the bigger issues. We do. But I do think it's going to be a mixed bag. I think in districts where uh, Donald Trump can motivate the base to come back out, and some of those are in these suburban districts in Atlanta, Georgia, we could be surprised at the upside for Republicans in the 6th Congressional District, the 7th, and in a couple of state House and state Senate seats that we lost last time by four or 500 votes. If all of these, quote, white Trump voters show back up that did not come in 2018, it's going to alter the numbers. Howard, what's your take on that? Uh, I tend to agree with Jen. It, it's so difficult to know. Um, I, I, Heath is right. 2018 was an anomaly in terms of turn, turnout. But I think it, it, some of what the Democrats were successful at doing in 2018 was really ratcheting up uh, the attention paid to the issues that really matter to most Americans, uh, health care. Pre-existing conditions. Exactly. Yeah. And even forcing Republicans to pivot on some of the yeah. things that had been uh, previously put out there uh, as uh, Republicans in Congress were, you know, vociferously railing against uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. So I think I think we've seen that in the last election in particular, when Democrats are able to elevate their voices and talk about issues, there's an advantage to be had, especially in these mid in the midterms. Now, if you're able to obfuscate the entire argument and make it about uh, a crisis at the border every single day, you know, I don't know. And I think also to acknowledge that Georgia, as it's growing into its own as a battleground state, you know, I think we've got a special set of challenges that are different than maybe in Ohio, uh, maybe different than in Arizona, um, that we really have to consider, and they're just impossible 
uh, to be able to predict or forecast. I mean, I, I knew that Stacey Abrams was going to do well. I did not expect that she would outperform Barack Obama in 2018. I just I didn't see that coming. So you all you've made some great points on that. And, and Jen, you started that by talking about the fact that you think we fall into a trap in a lot of ways by continuing to talk about President Trump and his rhetoric, although I would argue that there are some things you can't ignore, that there are some things that that someone right. says that has to be addressed. But nevertheless, uh, I think picking up on what Howard said here, if Democrats forget about what won them so many seats in 2018, issues like uh, health care, pre-existing conditions, and if they try, if they fall into the trap of making it all about President Trump, then, in fact, President Trump may have, have really done something very clever in, in pushing himself in that direction. Does that make sense? No, it does. I mean, it, especially if you're talking about the 6th Congressional, for example. I mean, Lucy McBath needs to be talking about the fact that universal background checks was passed out of the House. She needs to be talking about the fact that additional protections for pre-existing health problems was passed. She needs to talk about the minimum wage increase, a series of bills meant to block interference with the 2020 elections. She needs to be talking about all of the stuff that she, as part of this Democratic majority in the House, has accomplished. Now, let's be clear, it's gotten blocked by Mitch McConnell. But at the end of the day, Lucy McBath was sent up there to do certain things on certain issues, and she's actually delivered on that, and that's what she needs to be talking about. And on the other hand, the president, if he would uh, decide to broaden his message, could be talking about the economy, which would help him with independent voters, I would think. He's got his base. We know that. Right. Uh, it, perhaps he talks about the tax break, although I think that's probably problematic for an awful lot of voters out there. If you're conservative, you like the fact that he's got two conservative justices on the Supreme Court. So there's a way in which he may be stepping on his own message as well in terms of those voters who are unsure about which direction they want to go in 2020. If we break down the suburbs, what the average independent voter wants, whether it's an independent woman or an independent male, they want to talk about jobs in the economy. They want to talk about traffic congestion. They want to talk about health care and they want to talk about public education. And I think the candidates who can articulate the vision on that will win or at least fight it out and then the base right. is decide. Got to get to a break. I'm really late on our final break of the show, but that's because you all are so interesting today. <laughs> but let's take a break. Come back. we got a few more minutes to uh, discuss more on Political Rewind. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call. And you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. The death penalty is a controversial political issue, especially during presidential elections. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. I'm Ari Shapiro. With the federal government resuming executions, we look at the issue of capital punishment in past campaigns. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Gotta say, it's a pretty interesting coincidence that just after we talked about President Trump and racist uh, tweets, uh, we hear a promo for All Things Considered, which talks about Willie Horton in uh, the Michael Dukakis 1988 presidential campaign, George H.W. Bush and, uh, and Lee Atwater, his uh, right-hand man, uh, used that very successfully against Michael Dukakis. All right, we just got a couple minutes left. Howard, tomorrow night we see the first, the next in the uh, pairing of Democratic presidential debates. CNN has it tomorrow night. The big question that people are asking today is, um, is Joe Biden able to uh, get back to being a little bit more forceful in how he deals with the debate? He really hurt, suffered at the hands of Kamala Harris uh, in the last one. Uh, but she also, after an initial surge, there are a lot of people who were disappointed and upset with the way she treated Biden. What do you What do you see tomorrow night? Real yeah, quick, yeah, I, I expect Biden will be uh, in a little bit better form than we saw him last time. I, I don't know that I think he did such a poor job. I, I think that in that exchange, he wasn't prepared for it. His people are saying today 
he wasn't he he's now seeing he wasn't really ready for what I, happened. I think that that's a fair assessment. I also think that now you've got a few more a few more knobs out in the Democratic primary too. You've got uh, Cory Booker also going after him. I, this is definitely the debate that more folks want to see because I think you have more of the higher wattage, higher polling personalities all on the same stage having this discussion. I imagine there'll be a lot more uh, opportunities to really compare and contrast what folks have done and what they would do. Jen, uh, are you getting approached by the candidates yet? A lot of Democratic uh, Party uh, leaders are. Some. Are you being asked to endorse? You know what? I've had many conversations with folks. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of sitting back. Look, it's it's... It's very interesting to hear about the different ideas and platforms. I mean, that's that's what I want to hear. I mean, look, Elizabeth Warren comes out with a plan every day and then which has then forced everybody else to come out with a plan. Yeah. And then what's kind of nice about her is that even when she agrees with somebody else, she'll say, "Well, I like what he said." <laughs> you know, so many times we have people that aren't willing to say that somebody else has a good idea and yeah, I'd go with that. So it's been kind of refreshing in light yeah. of Twitter that if we actually talk about some different ideas, some may work, some may not, but at the end of the day, I you know, I like policy and I like to hear about it. We should point out that uh, uh, Heath, that Greg Bluestein did a piece in the AJC the other day. We we haven't had a chance to talk about it fully, but he he looked at who's raising the most money here in Georgia, and Joe Biden, as he's done around the country, is leading the pack among Georgia uh, voters in terms of fundraising. Uh, Kamala Harris, though, is right behind him, and so is Pete Buttigieg, which is really interesting to me. Uh, that really is. And I think watching this, right, and it's not just the amount of money you raise, right, the Democratic debate policy procedures require the number of donors, right? So right. don't, I mean, you look at the uh, smaller dollar donations that the other candidates are getting, those are just as important as the amounts that Joe Biden and others and I got to give a little shout out to Kamala Harris. Uh, I've watched her uh, doing a lot of work around attorneys general around the country. Uh, she was had the most impactful, you know, statement in the last set of debates and really eviscerated the front runner, uh, Joe Biden, in a way that she deserves a lot of credit for the way they posed the question because they did it on an issue that there's no way any debate prepper in America would have prepared the former vice president to, to, to be able to answer a question. It was, it was just great lawyery, lawyerly the way skills. She, she handles really herself was. in and Senate hearings it as is. well. And Absolutely. Uh, but and, and after all that, it looks like Joe is Uncle Joe's rebounded in the polls. He's back in a commanding lead. <laughs> and, and so th the question is, you know, what, what do you expect even after uh, a spirited debate? What do you really expect to see? I think a lot of this speaks to how focused singularly Democrats are on removing Donald Trump from the White House. Well, maybe, they, maybe a little five-hour energy. <laughs> well, yeah, look, they may be focused on removing Donald Trump, but the infighting in the Democratic Party on Capitol Hill, if read Maureen uh, uh, Dowd's piece on Sunday, she had a very strong cautionary statement for Democrats saying, folks, Stop with this fighting about progressive or mainstream Democratic politics. We're going to end up losing the White House. I think it's an interesting point of view, and I think he's something Republicans are looking at with a little sense of joy. Well, I would like to see more debates with at least 25 candidates <laughs> moving as far to the left as possible, uh, you know, on socialism uh, and open borders. All right. <laughs> we are uh, out of time uh, for today's show. Heath Garrett, because you are the only Republican here, you got the last word in today's Political Rewind. So, Heath, thank you. We're glad to have you back from your travels and, and look forward to seeing you again. Howard Franklin, it's always a pleasure to have. Have you got candidates in this race? I didn't Not ask yet. you. Have you got so, any? Still, but you're talking. Still kicking some tires. That's right. All right. And Jen Jordan. Um, I have no candidates. No. <laughs> I'm glad you could be back with us as well. So thank you, uh, all of you, for a really interesting conversation. Uh, we're out of time uh, for today's show. Um, again, Amy Kiley, thank you for filling in for Tom Faust and uh, Robert Jimison. Tom is back from vacation tomorrow, and uh, we'll be back with him at 2 o'clock with another edition of Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC, will be here with me along with the rest of our panel. So I look forward to seeing you then one last time. Monday, August 12th, Augusta, Georgia. Come out and see us at the Jesse Norman School of the Arts when we'll do the show in front of a live audience. Take care, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow at 2.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.